0: Hello and welcome to the Samop Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service in various specialties. Today we are fortunate to have Dr. Hernandez with us. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hernandez. Thanks for inviting me, Katie. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, where are you from originally or what medical school did you go to?
1: I'm from Wisconsin. Go Badgers. uh, And I was born and raised there. I went to college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And then I also went to medical school there at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Again, go Badgers. Um, And then when I graduated medical school, I went to internship at NMCSD Naval Medical Center San Diego, Um, In general surgery, and after intern year, I went and served as a general medical officer, a GMO, with the Marines up at Camp Pendleton, and did a deployment with them. I came home and did uh, completed the rest of my four years of general surgery residency at NMCSD in general surgery, and then after graduating from residency, I immediately went on a ship and did a deployment with them as the ship surgeon came home and then got stationed at Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton. And I've been there for the
0: last, uh, last few years. And now I'm on this podcast. Awesome. That sounds like a fun journey. So tell me a little bit about why you became a physician initially.
1: Well, uh, when I was in high school, my family had horses, uh, not expensive horses, just horses. And our vet would come out to the house because we lived in the country. So she made house calls or barn calls, as it were. And um, I would run out to the barn and hang out with her and ask her questions about being a vet, um, specifically a large animal vet. And so I told her I was interested and she said, well, that's fine. It just seems like you want to be a vet because you want to have a relationship with the animals like you have with your animals. And while that may be true for some vets, it's not really true for me and how I am a vet. And she's like, I'm just letting you know you can do it. And while I think that I would actually be very happy being a vet and specifically a large animal vet, um, my skills are better served uh, in being a, a vet of humans, a human physician. So and then I went to pursue medical school. Um, and so I just kind of changed tracks just a little bit to pursue medical
0: school at that time. So similarly, why did you want to join the military?
1: Well, my story isn't traditional um, and shout out to my two friends. I had two best friends in college and we took 90% of our classes together. I met them both freshman year. um, And uh, one of them, his dad was a Green Beret. So his dad said, Oh, hey, you should join the military and have them pay for medical school. uh, Because the three of us were all going to go to medical school. And so then my friend looked into the HPSP program, and he interviewed and did um, his physical And then he convinced the other two of us that we wanted to do it. And so my other friend was convinced first. And then I was like, well, if my friends are doing it, I want to do it too. And plus they said that I could get a stipend and buy a moped. And that was very important to me at the time. And when I told my parents I was joining the military to quote, hang out with my friends and buy a moped end quote, they were unhappy with my decisions. And that made me only want to join all the more. however, While that was my initial impetus to join the military, uh, and there's really nothing heroic about that. Since joining the military, I am very grateful that this is the path that I found myself on. I'm very proud to serve the military in really the only capacity that I'm able to serve in. um, And that is taking care of the men and women who serve because I would not do well in serving in other ways. So I'm very grateful that I fell into it in this way. And of note, my other two best friends, one joined and got out without deploying ever, and the other one never joined. So it's just me, the person who joined the game last, (laughs) representing 12 years later. That's
0: funny. So what led you to pursue general surgery as your specialty of choice?
1: When I was in medical school, I initially wanted to be a pathologist, uh, mostly from reading crime novels about forensic pathologists. Um, And so I really thought that it was all going to be about gross anatomy. And I loved autopsies. I attended several of them. I just thought they were so cool. The problem is, pathology is very little gross anatomy and very much histo and microscopes. And my major in uh, undergrad was medical microbiology and immunology again because my two best friends did it so I did it too and it was during that time that I realized that I passionately do not like microscopes and I I, it's not at all fun for me and so since that's most of pathology I did not pursue that and it left me kind of uh, wandering for most of first year and second year and part of third year. And so in my medical school, it was structured. The first two years were didactics and then the last two years were clinical rotations. And so I went on my clinical rotations, not really knowing. And I mean, I applied for things. I did not place surgery. I, you know, I was on the surgery rotation for the non-surgery people because I wasn't interested in it. And I went to peds. I thought I would do peds because I love children. I've always loved children. I've worked with children pretty much since I was a child old enough to supervise the younger children. um, All of my volunteer things are with education and children. So I figured PEDS would be a perfect fit for me. And as it turns out, I am not structured as a human being to be in primary care. Um, And blessings on those who are because I would rather not be a physician than be in primary care in America. I think it maybe be easier in another country, but in America, I would rather not. And so I have all the, all of the respect for the physicians who do primary care because their job is so hard. Um, and I just did not enjoy my rotation at all. And I was like, Oh no, now I really don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm running out of time. And so when I started my surgical rotation on general surgery, I was on the burn and trauma rotation, which wasn't the like, Surgical oncology chief of surgery rotation. It was just the rotation that you went on when you didn't want to do surgery. My resident um, asked me day one, hey, "Do you want to do surgery?" And I said, "Well, no, but I, I, you know, every rotation will teach me something, and I'm willing to work really hard. I just don't really want to do this with my life." And he said, "Oh, okay." His name was Drew. And then one weekend, I was like, uh, Drew, I was just wondering if I did want to do general surgery could you help me and tell me what I needed to do? And he's like, I knew we could get you. So um, I really liked about general surgery when I interviewed with the staff surgeon on the rotation. He's like, why do you want to do this? And I'm like, well, so to be perfectly honest, I like going to the emergency room and telling a patient, you have a problem. Here's how I'm going to fix it. And then we fix it. And then I see them once or twice afterwards, and then they go away fixed, and I don't have to keep seeing them anymore. And he's like, okay, that's a good reason. Most people say they want to do surgery because they like the OR, and the majority of our time is not spent in the OR. So if the OR is the only thing getting you through, it's going to be hard for you to keep going when you don't get to spend as much time there. And so I was like, oh, and now still to this day, that is what makes me the happiest about surgery is that I can fix people. I still get to have a bit of a relationship with them, but then for most people, my relationship ends and they can move on, but it's not like anesthesia or pathology where you don't really get to establish a relationship at all.
0: That's great. So you touched on this a little bit about what you liked about your specialty, but is there anything you don't particularly like about your specialty? Um,
1: yes. Uh, so I would say most of the time I'm so blessed to be a surgeon um, and getting to do something that I love to do. The For general surgeons in particular, because um, there are many surgical subspecialties, but for general surgeons in particular, sometimes we're you know, kind of the workhorses of the hospital that just are like the dumping ground when other services don't feel that it would be their responsibility to manage a patient. And so like, there's just nothing that we can really say no to, because it could all potentially fall with us. And so that can be frustrating at times. um, When you know, you're on call, and you're pretty much just getting people to the appropriate people. Um, But you know, that's, that's part of the game. If I wanted to be a surgical subspecialist like ENT, then I could have done that. I just don't like ENT pathology. So I chose the pathology I liked. Um, and then I would say one of the, it's one of the greatest joys, but also one of the greatest frustrations is when you are the surgeon, you are responsible for everything for your patient, every single thing, this is military or civilian, all subspecialties. And that is, when you walk into the OR, you are responsible for anesthesia, even though there's an anesthesiologist who is providing care. If something goes wrong, it still is gonna fall on you. If the perioperative nurse uh, isn't tracking something, it's gonna fall on you. If the surgical tech does something wrong, doesn't have your equipment, even though you set it on your case card, talked about it at the huddle, talked about it at the timeout, and it's still not there, and there's a delay in care, it's on you. Um, If your specimen gets lost, it's on you. If anything happens, it's on you. You assume full responsibility for that patient. And that is, that is wonderful uh, because that patient, they're literally placing their life in your hands and that is humbling and awesome um, and a responsibility that I hope no one takes lightly, but then it's also, it can be very frustrating to be responsible for people you've never met uh, doing jobs that you you know, I, I don't know how to sterilize equipment. Um, and so if they do it wrong, I'm still responsible for all of this. And so that can be, um, a lot to take on on an everyday basis, um, in a hospital system where, and you care the most because they're your patient. And if something goes wrong, that, you know, that perioperative nurse is not going to go talk to the patient. You're going to go talk to the patient and explain what happened and you will be bearing that responsibility to the patient and they're the one you will be accepting what happens from them because they're your patient and so that is something i think that isn't you don't realize until you're the one doing it that uh um it's a lot to take in and it's a lot to be responsible for surgeons work long hours, particularly general surgeons. And so if you are thinking, you know, I love the, I love the surgery, but I I love the OR, but I don't love the lifestyle. Surgery is the lifestyle. Surgery is being gone from your family and being there at that patient's bedside and waiting for everyone in the OR to get their stuff together so that you can operate. It just is military, civilian, private practice, academic medicine, that's just how it is. So if you don't like that lifestyle, then, you know, maybe surgery, general surgery isn't the thing for you. Um, and that's okay. Then you can do something else. But that is just how it is. Um, and that is part of the lifestyle is part of the, the profession.
0: That's very helpful advice. And I appreciate your honesty on
1: that. When I talk to medical students and and sometimes, you know, interns that are undecided or want to change is what would think about if you don't have a family now, or if you do have a family at that time, what would you be willing to do that takes you away from your family? Um, I missed my children's first steps. I missed their first words. I missed countless times with my family to be at work. And so you need, I would recommend that you choose something that you are willing to be apart from them that is worthwhile to you. So if it's not worthwhile to you to do all that stuff um, for a specific specialty, then don't do it. So when I said earlier in the podcast, you know, like I would rather not be a physician than be a primary care doctor in America. I That means that I am not willing to not be by my family so that I could do primary care in America. I'm just not, I would rather do something else with my life. So, um, and, but for surgery, you know, the hours are there and I have spent many weekends away from my family and it can be long and frustrating. Occasionally I really regret my life choices, but most of the time I understand that this is what I chose and I'm proud to be there serving my patients when it's my turn to serve my patients.
0: Thank you so much. So switching gears a little bit, Tell me about some of the places that you've been stationed at or what sort of different positions have you held in your military medicine career?
1: Of course. Um, So, you know, when I was an intern in general surgery, I was an intern in general surgery, you know, running around, doing all this stuff, just like on the TV shows. Just like you would imagine when you're a medical student, you see the interns doing that. Um, After that, I went with the Marines. So I was with 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, 1st Marine Logistics Group, 7th Engineer Support Battalion, so 7th ESB. And so I was stationed with them as their general medical officer. And so what a general medical officer is, is, you know, you have your medical license, but you don't have, in my position, I didn't have any advanced training past that. So I wasn't a resident and I, I, I wasn't a board certified practitioner. Um, And so you are a primary care doc to a whole bunch of predominantly healthy, but some not so healthy men and women. Uh, 7th Engineer Support Battalion is the largest battalion in the Marine Corps. It's about 1800 people or it was when I was there. Um, And so I served with Um, a bunch of corpsmen. And um, I had an IDC, an independent duty corpsman, which is the military version of a PA, except that there's no credentialing, formal credentialing. So the poor IDCs, they actually don't have translatable skills. They would have to go and like repeat PA school, but it would be an equivalent of a mid-level. So like they can't prescribe certain medications. They ran a lot of patients through me, but he was there helping me out as well. Um, And we all worked as one big team. And so for there, you know, you're responsible for sick call. You're responsible for the medical readiness of your unit. So immunizations, um, dental, all that stuff. And then um, when you are seeing sick call, you know, making sure people get to specialists You're doing all the physicals for people to separate, to do lateral transfers, to do all sorts of things. Um, And then you are the medical mouse to the commanding officer the CO to let him or her her know what's going on from the medical world um, and help out all the company commanders with the care of their Marines and sailors. So that's what we did. And then um, they had just returned from a deployment when I showed up and then, They quickly ramped up to go on another deployment. This is when Afghanistan, the OEF, uh, was very active. And so we went on a seven to eight month deployment out to Afghanistan. We were at Camp Leatherneck Well, I was at Camp Leatherneck. Many of my corpsmen were stationed at the surrounding um, bases that they were building. As logistics, we build. So, you know, they make roads. They make, um, you know ditches they make communities they make walls so they bridges they 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 do kind of that stuff so we're not the like go hunt down the killers we're more of the build places so that the people who are hunting down the killers have places to go and also doing missions with local communities and so I was at home base kind of seeing sick call in Afghanistan essentially, but also help working with my senior enlisted leadership to help coordinate what my corpsmen were all doing and making sure that everyone was getting safe care. And then um, I came back from that deployment and went back to residency and residency is surgical residency. <laughs> and uh, so my role, you know, I was a resident and then I was chief resident. And then I graduated and went on the USS Carl Vinson, Vis Mar, CBN 70, woo and that my role on that ship um, there are people like gmos that um, were on the ship but i was on the ship as this ship surgeon so there's only one of me there's an anesthesiologist or a crna we had a crna um, and then one ship's nurse and i had a couple of the corpsmen that were search techs so they worked with me in the or and so that was our or team usually on ships if everyone's doing their job appropriately and we are not at war which we were not actively at war, then um, you know there's not as much for the ship surgeon to do because if everyone's being safe, then you don't have much to operate on, that's good. Um, so, you know I, I took out some appendixes and lumps and bumps and uh, a couple emergencies, um, but you're pretty much just on call. Um, but it's an important role because the ship can't pull out of port until the surgeon's on it. I am an irreplaceable role. And, um, and then you work with the rest of the medical department, there's family practice doctors and flight surgeons and senior medical officers, IDCs like before, and then a whole bunch of corpsmen. So, you know, worked in the medical department, did training, stuff like that. And then I came to Camp Pendleton where I've been a staff surgeon and enjoying, uh, working there. I also clinically also work at Balboa, NMCSD, MCSD. Um, doing breast health down there as well. So I work at both facilities. And so to be a staff surgeon, you know, I I see clinic, I take call, I operate. um, And then you get to, once you're a grown up, you get to be on committees and do all that kind of stuff as well. So I've been, I chose committees that I'm particularly interested in, like surgical quality, um, and graduate medical education. um, And that's where I focus my time. Again, if I'm going to spend time away from my family, I want to do stuff that I'm passionate about.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. So what advice would you have um, for students who are trying to get into a military residency? You
1: know, it's probably different now. So I would, you know, it's probably competitive. When I joined, it was post 9-11. They would have taken someone uh, with no legs and no eyes and been like, you should be a surgeon because they were just desperate for anyone to join. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, um, it was not hard for me to secure a position. Um, And so I think that it's much more competitive now because it's a good opportunity. And so I would approach it just like you were approaching any sort of program, you want to market yourself um, and you want to be a well-rounded person. So it's not just grades, you know, it's grades and experiences, how you're contributing to society um, and, you know, being well-rounded, but, you know, maybe having your strengths. So my strength is not research. My strength is volunteering and education. And so I focus on that, but I also have other things that I'm doing to make sure that I have my hand in all pots. Um, And, getting to know people being open and eager to volunteer um, and, you know, forming your own way when you're there, you know, to ask about things and make your mark when you, when you interview. um, And when you're the medical student there, does that answer your question, Katie?
0: It does. It does. So is there anything you wish you knew as a medical student, intern, or resident that you know now, yeah, I think about it because now
1: I now as the supervisor of all of them, I get a chance to kind of step back. And so, the thing that really strikes me is, you know, in medical school, you're literally paying them to be there. Um, and so, if you're paying someone to be there and you're trying to cut out early or trying to not get the full experience. I mean, that's your call, it's your money and it's, but, and it's your education, but um, it's, I never really thought about it that way when I was in medical school. And it's hard to think about it that way. Cause you've been working so hard for so long, you are like, gosh, I just, I'm tired. Um, but really thinking about it that way um, is a great way to think about it. Is that you're paying to be here? So, you know, if you're paying a whole bunch of money to go to a hotel, are you just going to stay in your room or are you going to go and experience all of the amenities that the hotel has to offer? Um, and if you just want to stay in your room, because that's just all you can do mentally, emotionally, physically in that moment, well, then that is your call. But you, you're already paying for those amenities, so you might as well work on them. Um, and then as an intern i think i as well like i was like i just want to be in the or i just want to be in the or i just want to be in the or but a lot of intern and you know maybe second year of surgical residencies in particular so this is excluding the non surgical residencies it your surgical skills will come you will get to the or but a lot of what is taught is how to care for patients and the processes that go into that so you know getting up and presenting in the morning Um, And having the surgeons, you know, go over everything you did with the fine tooth comb seems excessive and frustrating and occasionally pointless. But usually the reason why they're doing that, the underlying reason is so that you can think on your feet because you have to do that in surgery. And You can defend your decisions because you have to do that in surgery and that you know every single reason for every single thing you did because you have to do that because going back to what I said before, you're responsible for every single part of your patient's care. And if you don't know how to do some of the more basic parts of it, uh, because that was beneath you when you were an intern, what's going to happen when your intern can't do it and you're the senior resident? It, they're going to call you. And now you have to do it when you're the staff. Uh, one of the surgeons that I trained under um, when I couldn't get a femoral line one day, he went and plopped it in and uh, like, which is putting a catheter into someone's artery in their groin. And I just couldn't get it and I couldn't get it. He gave me a couple tries and then he just put it in and he turned to me and said, you want to know why I got it? And I said, no, sir. And he goes, cause there's no one behind me. I'm the only one. So I have to get it. Um, now, obviously, he was doing a much more complex case to follow that. So it's this was an easy skill, but still, like I have thought about that now as a staff. When I turn around, there's no one behind me. It's just me. So I need to be able to do all those things. I need to be able to defend my decisions, not only for me but also for my patients. They deserve a surgeon who knows how to do everything and is in charge of everything and has knowledge on everything. And that came from those years of having to present. And now I have to present patients you know, to staff when I transfer to other facilities, when I tell leadership what happened to my patients. And if I'm bumbling around in a presentation because I can't speak concisely and provide accurate information and knowing what is relevant and what is not relevant, then I'm not going to be a good communicator for my patients. And those skills come in your first couple years of residency, regardless of surgery or non-surgery. So it seems pointless. It seems pointless to have, you know, like that you have to do all the presentations for tumor board or that you have to put together a pre-op conference or all that stuff. But it's so that you realize the things you have to do when you are the one who's actually pre-opping the patient. Because, you know, for surgery, when we go and do our boards, You know, they are asking those questions. They want to know what you're doing to work up your patient before you take them to surgery. And they want to know what you're doing in surgery. And they want to know if you can take care of their complications, not just if you know how to do a Whipple. And and that's because all of those things are very important. No one's doing those jobs for you. You have to know how to do them yourself.
0: Thank you. That's great. Great advice that I'm sure many people will take to heart. I hope so. So... What struggles have you had balancing being an officer and a physician and how have you balanced those? (laughs) Uh,
1: When you told me this question, I, I kind of chuckled. Um, And so I was just telling uh, some of the people that I'm hanging out with uh, right now where I am, you know, we're all supposed to be officers first and then physicians and I very much struggle because I'm, I'm a. In my heart, it beats the heart of a physician, that is also an officer, and I think the balance comes in trying to figure out the appropriate situations where I need to be an officer, and the appropriate situations where I need to be a physician, and sometimes I need to be the hybrid of the two, um, where I am speaking to you know, leadership for one of my patients and I need to tell them that like they are not going to boss me around because I know what they're trying to do and I don't owe them specific information on my patient. And sometimes I need to be a physician and not an officer talking to a scared patient who doesn't know what to do and doesn't know what their resources are. Um, And moving back and forth between the two is what I find the most challenging but you're supposed to be an officer first. There's my formal party answer.
0: <laughs> Thank you. So similarly, what are some pitfalls we should avoid as physicians and or officers?
1: I think some pitfalls specifically for medical corps officers. And I can only speak to medical corps in the Navy, so I can't speak to the other branches um, but I have heard similar things when I've gone to, you know, MHS conferences. Is the line does a much better job, so non medical people, of educating their officers on promotion and advancement and, you know, doing stuff like that. And, you know, in medical, I mean, for Navy, we go to, I went to something called OIS, I, don't, I think it's called OCS or ODS or something else right now, but, you know, I went to my fake boot camp for, four to six weeks in Rhode Island. And, you know, their whole job is to do that. And then, you know, like that never made it into my military medical record. A thing that I was blissfully unaware of until I was on deployment with the Marines and my chief, my senior enlisted leader was asking me about my record. And I had no idea what he was talking about, literally none. And uh, and then and even then he didn't ask me about some of those things. I literally just got my OIS, what I did when I was in college, put on my medical record this year because I didn't realize it wasn't on there because I just kind of assumed it was on there because I assume that there's some person at OIS who inputs the thousands of people who go to it every year and puts it in their record. And that's kind of their job. But I guess not. And then they don't tell us. There's many, many um, people in my community who like, you know, our diplomas aren't in there. I had to fight for my diplomas to get put in my, my education. I mean, literally the reason why I'm an officer, I'm not an officer because I did anything else. I'm an officer because I went to medical school and it wasn't in my record. Uh, and I fought for all of that. I did a lot of that. My chief helped me when I was deployed with the Marines to Afghanistan you have a whole lot of time. So I just submitted stuff and would wait six weeks and would call PERS at the six week mark and tell them, Hey, I submitted this stuff and it's not my record. What are you going to do now? Um, And got a lot of stuff updated that way. But you know, if you don't know that you need to do that, then it's hard to know that you need to do that and get it done. And I do think that that's a disservice to our medical corps officers Um, because we're all just focused on being physicians and like for surgeons, we're focused on being surgeons and doing all that stuff. And there's not a lot of other time for these other things that we just kind of disregard and they're not important from a a patient care aspect, but they are important for promotion and opportunities. And unless we tell our own about them, then how would they ever know? And so I do think that that's a way that our core can work on taking care of, each other, so that we all—it's equitable opportunities for promotion and advancement and um, professional development.
0: Do you think that the solution to those problems that you mentioned lies with upcoming leadership or incoming students, or how do you think we go about fixing that? The solution is not the students—that's for
1: sure. It would be leadership. Um, but it's good to know that these things exist. But I mean, honestly, it's really hard. I mean, when I was in your shoes, I didn't know the difference between an intern, a resident and a fellow. Like I, I genuinely remember writing stuff down. Like, I don't I don't know what any of this means. When I was a, in my younger years of medical school, I knew they all existed. I just didn't know kind of the differences and the nuances. And so the, the solution is in leadership. So I'm doing my one small part. So that uh, when I was a senior resident in our program, I every year would have a little lecture for whoever wanted to attend on how to take care of your professional record. They started doing career development boards while I was there, which was not my choice, but I support. Um, And it sounds like now, like in my in my residency program, they do do career development boards on a regular basis. They do talk about these things. because the graduates who have come out of there in the last couple years when they go out as staff they know more than I did when I went out as staff and so it sounds like our at least our tiny little corner of the community is changing but it needs to be a more global part of the change so that everyone has these opportunities especially especially people who come in Um, Because a lot of people get deferred and do civilian residencies and then come in as staff. If they choose to stay as staff and they don't just pay off their time, both ways are choices that are very individual. But if they do choose to do that, they're at a bit of a disadvantage because instead of having the time of their residency anywhere from three to five or six years to work on their record and to hear all this stuff, they're just coming in and they don't know anything other than what they learned when they went to OIS, which is a whole bunch of nothing.
0: Thank you. So, how would you say that we could develop officership well in medical school, if at all?
1: Oh, that's a hard question, Katie, because all experiences are different. So, if you're at the military medical school, I mean, I think they develop officership really well. Um, and so, a lot of times, you know, when I was an intern, I leaned on my USIS colleagues, you know, to make sure my uniform was good and uh, what would be the appropriate thing to do and, like, when do I salute and don't salute? Uh, uh, because, it, you know, at that point, it had been three years since I went to OIS and I had not worn my uniform once since then. So, Um, I leaned on them and they were great educators because they've been doing it for the last four years. And then for people with civilian medical schools, but military residencies like me. So then I learned over the course of that time. And honestly, I learned like everything while I was there. And most of what I learned to be about being an officer was when I was with the Marines and when I was with the, my ship, Um, and not a lot was done in residency to be perfectly honest. There was some, I'm not criticizing my residency and my, uh, my home hospital, but it's just, the focus is on medicine as it should be because we are medical providers, uh, and surgeons and physicians, but, um, Uh, it's hard and then if you do both civilian medical school and civilian residency like where is the opportunity I mean when I was in medical school I would show up to the the ROTC unit near me so that they would sign my 45-day active duty activation orders they had no idea who I was they had no idea how to take care of me and you know, the recruiter drops you like a bad habit after you join. And like, I had no, I had no person to contact. Um, and so I, I don't know a good way to fix that um, because it's not the recruiter's job to handhold people that they've already recruited, so I'm not criticizing the re- recruiters, but then whose job is it to handhold these people? Who it, whose job is it to make sure that they are plugged into a community that teaches them a little bit about what they just signed up for? Um, and I don't know if there is something in place for that. There was nothing in place for me.
0: <laughs> well, we hope that our small part of our um, SAM Ops group is what's helping connect people
1: I hope so that
0: in in civilian medical school so but every little every little piece counts so
1: I think so and I think that what you guys are doing is that's pretty cool and now again social media was just coming out around that time like I had just gotten a Facebook account and I was one of three people with my name uh, back in the early days of Facebook Um, so what you're doing, like podcasts weren't a thing and Facebook and other social media wasn't really a thing yet. And so I don't know how they would have connected us better genuinely. Um, and so I think that you guys are taking the tools that are available to you and using them, uh, to their advantage.
0: And I commend you for that. Thank you. We sure hope so. (laughs) So my last question for you is what has kept you in the military?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I married active duty. um, And uh, so that helped. And I just literally just finished paying off my time. So up until now, I didn't have the opportunity to leave. Um, And uh, to be perfectly honest, Katie, I am undecided on if I will stay in. Um, And so, you know, the military, there's, there's wonderful things about the military that you would, um, you know, the people that I trained with, Um, And really I've gotten one or two really close people from every single experience I've had, Um, you know, like they're, they're closer than family. um, And there's something that goes, that really makes your bond strong when you spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week with someone or a group of people and your family and support unit is not with you. So mine is in Wisconsin and I'm in California. So my military family they are my family Um, and they're the ones I call when something bad happens. And they're the ones that are the emergency call when my kid is sick at daycare and I can't get to them. Um, And they're the ones who, you know, when I had a death in the family, they all took my call without asking, without me even having to contact them um, and showered me with love and affection and care in the months and years following that. Um, And so while I do think that Parts of that are mirrored in civilian programs because, you know, you are still spending a lot of time with people. There is an element in the military that is different um, and that is really special. Um, and same thing with like the friendships I've made with people on the line, you know, just from being with them all day, every day. You just get to know people. Um, but and that's cool. And I'm serving my country. And that's that's very much of an honor, um, but you know some of the downsides that people don't really talk about is the com- the complete loss of autonomy in the military, um, and a lot of people join or become physicians, and a lot of people also marry physicians because they want autonomy, they want control of their life, and you know they also want to serve other humans. Maybe they want to make money. I don't know, but a lot th- there's an autonomy aspect to it that you want to be in control of your life. And when you join the military, you do give up a degree of that. And whether that degree is large or small, depends on kind of the geosocial political climate that's going on at the time. And, you know, how many people are in your specialty and what the leaders are doing um, and stuff like that. But, you know, um, you can get called to do stuff that, you don't want to do, and it's needs of the military bef- before your needs, and that's not always bad. It's just a part of, that's that's part of the military, and that's part of what you're signing up for, and, you know, I'm married to active duty. Um, actually, he just retired, so I'm no longer dual mill, but I was married to active duty for about 10 years, and um, being dual mill, there are things that they do to support you, but a lot of it is you chose this lifestyle and it's going to be hard. Um, and he has had to do things and I've had to do things that we don't care to do and that don't serve us or our families. And it, it wasn't really an optional event. Um, and so that is just something that, that tempers my decision to stay in because that is hard. It's hard to give all that up. Um, even for all the good things that are there. And so obviously if I'm struggling with this decision, it means the good is very good, but the the struggles are also very real. And I don't think that any single person mentioned the loss of autonomy to me. And when you're single, you know, loss of autonomy, you know, whatever sounds good. You want me to go to this place, I'll go. Uh, but when you start having relationships and now you have children and you leave them unexpectedly, um, and you leave for long periods of time, and those periods of time get long, in like, like elongated, and um, these these times happen more frequently, and you have to keep moving them. Then suddenly, um, it becomes a different discussion on if those if that loss of autonomy is worth it for all those benefits, and that is different for every single person.
0: Thank you. I know a lot of people will benefit from your honesty. And so we really appreciate that. Yeah.
1: And I'm not disparaging it. It's just that that is part of being in the military is the loss of autonomy.
0: Thank you. Do you have any final advice or tips and tricks you would like to give the listeners of this podcast?
1: Um, I think uh, one of the questions you had asked me um, was... Oh, I guess a couple more pitfalls. I guess a a big one for me, maybe just going back to that question, is um, a lot of times people just say, you know, like, they don't pass anything on, we just reinvent the wheel. And that is true in military and civilian programs, but it is particularly apparent in the military. And it's unlikely you're the first person to do anything. So just find the person who did it before you and draw on what they did and make it applicable to what you're doing. And if you are the person that is passing things on, then pass it on, pass on your experiences so that that person doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. Because a lot of people, which leads into the next thing, you know, it was hard for me, so it can be hard for them. And that is for medical school, that's for residency, that's for you know your deployment experiences, that's for being a staff. And we should, as a medical community, as an officer community, and as human beings, work constantly to make the experience for those who follow in our footsteps better. It, you should, it, it is a failure of you as a leader if you are accepting that it will be just as bad, if it's bad, for someone following behind you as it was for you because um, you're not working to make it any better for them. Um, And then which also leads into a lot of people are like, well, it's not my problem. And so you may not be the right person to fix a problem. And you may not have anything at all. But that doesn't mean that you can't use your knowledge and experience to help them at least get to the next step. And a lot of times the answer in the military is no. Um, And a lot of times the answer for non physicians is no. No, 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 no. And my answer, if I'm just giving the answer of no, then I just feel like I haven't done my job. I'm very rarely the right person to do that, but I can point them in the right direction. Oh, hey, I don't do that at all, but you wanna know who does? This person, here's their contact information. If you can't get a hold of them, call me back and I'll help you out. Um, And that is a completely different answer than not my problem, click. And I think that we as physicians are leaders and uh, that is my expectation of physicians and all medical subspecialties, but this is the physician's podcast, so <laughs> our future physician's podcast, uh, that physicians uh, are taking the lead there and trying to make things better in every, everything that they touch, everything they're a part of.
0: What are the differences that you've seen between military and civilian training or medicine? And are there lessons that you think can be applied from one setting to the other?
1: Definitely I do. Um, and so, um, as you know, in res- and excuse me, in medical school. So I went to a civilian medical school. So, you know, everything was civilian except for my few military rotations. But then even in residency, we rotated at civilian institutions for a large portion of our residency, just in San Diego, because, um, you know, sometimes they offered, rotations that we didn't have, like we didn't, at at NMCSD, we don't have a burn unit, so we would have to rotate at UCSD for their burn unit, and we don't have transplants, so we would go to Scripps to rotate on transplant, and sometimes we just, it's nice to do general surgery at other places from a volume perspective, a learning from other physicians perspective, etc., and so, you know, the military is very hierarchical, um, and civilian places are hierarchical and a little bit less, but, um, I think, you know, there are benefits to both of them. So, you know, in the civilian world, classically, but not at all places, there's a lot more support staff. Um, and so there's, you know, ways to help. So there's, you know, nurses who are hired for surgeons um, who literally answer questions for patients that call. And they're the ones who who do all the education and they're the ones who set up the follow-up appointments. And a lot of times they have like advanced practice uh practitioners um you know seeing their routine post-ops and stuff like that and so then the surgeons there are doing a lot more you know kind of the overhead and you know seeing doing the complex cases and following up on these things and making the executive decisions but like kind of the mundaneness is lost and you know there that that is really nice um But then uh, in the military, at least in our facility, that for sure does not happen. I am the nurse calling all the patients. I am the one arranging their appointments. Like we have a scheduler, but I'm still making sure that they happen. Um, I am the one who's coordinating between the different specialties to make sure someone gets care. Um, And I'm the one being the surgeon doing all that stuff. And then the benefit is, though, that I know every part of our system and I know my patient's experience and you know, when a patient is reporting a problem or, you know, they need something done so that they can get on a deployment or they're getting out of the military. Like I know what it's like to get out of the military. I know what it's like, you know, cause I also call and my kids are enrolled in TRICARE. I know what it's like to be on the phone for two hours with TRICARE getting bounced around. Um, so then I can sympathize with them and understand what's going on. Um, but then I also, because I, I'm not driven by the, the overhead that civilians can be, you know, like you must see a person in this amount of time or else. And I I have the flexibility to spend some extra time uh, with a patient who is scared about what's going on and needs a little bit more education than someone else does, or spend a little bit of extra time communicating with their leadership about how they can work with me so that we can get them the care that they need. And that is one of the true joys. It's not a joy to be the nurse work worker, but it is a joy to be able to have that flexibility to do that in the military and to really know more about what's going on with your patients. And some of that came from being deployed. Um, You know, I didn't know what it was like to be with the Marines until I was with the Marines. And now I understand when someone says I'm a motor T operator, I know what that means. And I know what that means in relation to you know when i do their inguinal hernia repair what i need to be looking out for for them so i can take good care of them and i wouldn't have known that unless i went with them and if i was a civilian physician seeing them they're like i'm a motor t operator that would be like okay sounds good i don't care like thanks for letting me know um and so i think that that is a benefit of military medicine is doing that um and so but then you can translate it if you're in the civilian world remembering that some of that stuff for our military service members are unique challenges you know people going on deployment spouses being gone not like if you are if you have a civilian spouse um and they have young children and i'm going to take out their gallbladder that if it's a woman like she, she she needs to have someone around to help take care of those babies if they if it's like two weeks after she gave birth to her child if her husband's on deployment i just it's not going to work any other way. She won't recover very well. And I know that, and I can get her in contact with the people who can help her facilitate her care after I'm done taking care of her.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Any other points you would like to touch on or any last pieces of wisdom you can impart to us?
1: Um, I don't think I have anything else. I hope I've never been interviewed where I just talked and talked before so I hope that I entertained and offered insights and education uh, to anyone listening to this podcast. And if you are, it means that you're at the start of a really exciting career, whatever field that you choose, whatever branch in the military that you choose, I wish you best of luck. Um, you know, if you contact me on the G, the gal, uh, I will write you back. Um, or if you contact Katie, she can get a hold of me. Um, it's of what you're choosing is in many ways more challenging than not choosing it. But hopefully, you're choosing it for all the right reasons and or to get a moped. And so, um, um, hopefully, you get as rewarded as I have been by it.
0: Thank you. So that wraps up our episode with Dr. Hernandez today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, please feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.